Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Show podcast. Just an absolutely heartbreaking week with the horror in New Zealand. And I had the opportunity today to speak with Rahil Raza. She's a consultant for interfaith and intercultural diversity. She's located in Toronto and the first Muslim woman in Canada to lead a mixed gender prayers. And she received a standing ovation in Canada's parliament for her speech celebrating our differences. After I spoke with Rahil Raza, Professor Mohammed Fadl joined me. He's an associate professor of law and the Canada Research Chair for the Law and Economics of Islamic Law. His expertise is Islamophobia. He's from the University of Toronto. You'll hear Professor Fadl. And uh, joining me as well from Montreal was Imam Lukman Ahmed of the Ahmadiyya Jamaat of Canada. And uh, I spoke with the Imam about what he is very concerned about. And he says that is bigotry toward Muslims in this country. You'll hear all three. Also coming up today, as we look back at the week in Ottawa and the Parliamentary Justice Committee and the decision by the Liberals to outvote the opposition 5-4 to four to not recall Jody Wilson-Raybould immediately before the committee. I spoke with Christian Bourke, the Executive Vice President of Leger Marketing. Now, Leger did a poll of Quebecers, and the SNC scandal is costing the Liberals votes. It's gaining votes for the Conservatives, while the others are, except for the Green Party, the others are all falling behind. You'll hear what Christian Bourke had to say, as well as Michael Cooper, Michael Cooper is a Conservative Party MP and a member of the Parliamentary Justice Committee. He'll talk to us, or you'll hear him talk about what happened on that committee as the Liberals voted against Jody Wilson-Raybould's return. And Graham is a 31-year-old Canadian who's suffering from Lyme disease. He has terrible, terrible chronic pain. He's going to lose his doctor to retirement. And Graham is terrified he will not find another doctor who will be prescribing what he's been using to control the pain for years, and that's opioid medications. He wrote to me that this may be his last spring. Well, here, Graham, as well as Kate Nicholson, for 20 years a U.S. Justice Department civil rights attorney who drafted the current legislation for the Americans with Disabilities Act. She's a former chronic pain patient, and she's very active in supporting chronic pain patients. All of that more coming up. Just have a listen. There isn't anyone who doesn't feel heartsick about what happened. And uh, there are times when finding words to try to describe how you feel is extremely difficult. And this is one of those times. Because I'm thinking of the uh, 49 people whose lives were stolen from them. And um, I, don't, I don't know what to do with that on a very personal level. I, I just don't know because it is so abhorrent and so utterly cruel. We're going to be speaking with a number of people today who will provide us their perspectives and, and their thoughts, and they'll probably help as we... Uh, as we deal with, with what took place. Houses of worship have become targets. And that is deeply, deeply concerning. Deeply concerning. Uh, we will also be talking about other issues that uh, affect each and every one of us in this country and the ongoing Ottawa crisis. We'll have, have that for you. And there, there are other stories coming up. But this is not a story. This is something that that is just is so so very hard to describe. And other than to say, as I'm talking about it now, and I, I wondered how I'd feel when I turned on the microphone, and I feel I feel just absolutely heartsick. Rahil Raza is a consultant for interfaith and intercultural diversity in Canada. She's the first Muslim woman in Canada to lead a mixed-gender prayers. And uh, among other things, she received a standing ovation in Canada's parliament for her speech celebrating our differences. And uh, she's the first person I called. Hi, Rahil. Hello, Dory. Thank you so much. Where do we begin? 
Well, um, you know, there are no words to describe the awful, tragic incident that has taken place. Uh, you know, just saying um, I'm sorry is, is not enough. I mean, this is a truly, truly horrendous, uh, tragic incident affecting so many innocent lives. And, um, uh, you know, in our time of grief as, as human beings, uh, it, it's really a hit at the heart of humanity. Uh, and an attack on a place of worship, uh, you know, to me as a believing woman, is an attack on God, whether it is a mosque, a church, a synagogue, or a temple. Uh, and the people who have carried out this attack are obviously not believers in God. Otherwise, uh, they wouldn't do something like this. And, you know, there is evil at play. It is a, a, an evil, ghastly attack by cowardly people. And uh, it's something that, uh, you know, the families of the victims will probably never, ever get over. You know, I uh, I was thinking, I've had so many thoughts over the last days since I, I woke up Wednesday morning at about 3 o'clock in the morning and just rolled over in bed. I'd gone to bed early because I wasn't feeling well, and I, I woke up and I, and, I, and I opened my phone, which is the first thing I always do now, and I stared at the phone screen, and I, I kept... I kept not actually believing what I was saying. And, 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 and I've been thinking since then about what took place and, and, and everything that's been talked about. And I just wonder, where do we, how do we get to the point where someone commits an act of such viciousness? And it can't be because people debate issues. It can't be because... There, there are differences of opinion. The strong differences of opinion. There is something, there's something on the on the on the fringes of of human behavior that has, I think, has, has just run amok. Am I am I understanding things properly on this? Well, I think you are. You know, once we have passed the grieving period, and I don't know when that will be. How soon? I think we have to ask ourselves, and when I say ourselves, you know, humanity, some tough questions. And the question that I want to ask is, where are we failing? Uh, obviously, we failed humanity, and I think that all of us are somehow part of this. Um, you know, this is not a time to place blame on anyone, because in some ways we're all to blame, in some ways none of us. Uh, you know, on the political front, you have politicians who will say anything to please communities in order to get their vote. They don't understand the intricacies and the problems within communities. On the religious front, we keep having ineffectual interfaith dialogue, which talks about, you know, food and clothes and la-la stuff. What we don't talk about is what we don't have in common, what we don't talk about is our differences. We're not dialoguing in a world of social media People are expressing their emotion, their anger, their joy, their pleasure on Facebook and on Twitter. And other people are responding to this, but we don't pick up the phone and talk to each other. We are not having social interaction in the way it was meant to be. And I think that that is part of the problem. We are getting more and more polarized. We are getting, you know, we, we, we are being separated and we are letting these politics of identity divide us. And this is where I believe we have to all stand together as one humanity. You know, there is a beautiful Sufi saying, and I'm a Sufi at heart, that human beings are the part, like the parts of one body. If one part is injured, the whole body hurts. And that is the fact. And the outpouring of support and compassion and solidarity that has come from all over the world, from every faith community, from everywhere, uh, the fact that synagogues were closed for the first time ever in New Zealand on a Saturday on Shabbat, this shows that, you know, majority of people are good people and they do care, but there is evil that stalks us, that lives among us. We need to talk about that. We do, and it's perfectly acceptable and it's necessary to have strong opinions on political issues because those are separate, and that's where we often express very strong views. But there are people who can't separate it, clearly, can't separate or will not separate or simply um, exp use other debates to facilitate their own evil 
and and this is this is deeply concerning to me. Um, you yeah. talk you, you talk about communicating. I was look I was driving uh, when I was driving to the radio station today. I was talking to somebody on the phone, and the hands free. Uh, so I was driving and I was talking and I was looking around and everybody seemed to be talking in their cars. Either they were talking to themselves, <laughs> which is not likely, or maybe it is, or they were talking to somebody on the phone and with the windows closed. And I thought, this is the society we've become. Yeah. We, we, we talk to somebody else um, in our vehicles with our windows closed. And um, we don't talk to each other face to face that much anymore. And, and, and people will go through their entire lives not knowing where they're, or, well, go through a period of, lengthy period of time without any, having any idea. Maybe they know who their neighbor is, but they don't know who the second or third person down the street is. And they wouldn't know them if they bumped into them. And, well, and, this is what, what I meant. This, you know, yeah. the breakdown of communication, the breakdown of social interaction, where we don't, on a you know, face to face basis, uh, interact with each other. So, uh, you know, that's exactly uh, what I believe is part of the problem. And then, uh, you know, Roy, what I find so obscene, and that's the only word I can use, is that, you know, certain individuals and groups and organizations want to squeeze political mileage out of such a tragic incident. And there is, you know, the slapping of blame. And this, I mean, it's a point where I can't even open Facebook anymore. Uh, you know, this uh, to, to blame people. Yes, of course, somebody is at fault, but we need to understand that there is a larger message here. If we don't take this tragic incident as a reason to come together, you know, in love and compassion and solidarity, then nothing will bring us together. Because tragedy does bring people together, and we should be able to go beyond our our differences and talk to each other and communicate and, you know, discuss issues. And as you're saying, there's no harm in having different political issues. But people are so hell-bent on saying that they are right and everyone else is wrong that it becomes impossible to open your mouth. There are politicians who are being bashed for not saying that this was the only tragic incident in the history of the world. Uh, you know, there are people who, who have said, you know, I sympathize uh, with other uh, victims of terror and other victims of, of harshness and cruelty, and they're being slammed. But that's not the way we should deal with a situation like this. You know, we need to be very cognizant and respectful of, of how we talk about words are so important. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, people are not careful about their words when they're on Facebook and anonymous and you can't see them. When you're face to face, you're careful about how you have a conversation. But on Twitter, you're not. Yeah. And this has really sucked the humanity out of us. Let me ask you one more question. The fact that houses of worship have become targets and we've seen it increasingly. What does that speak to? It speaks to something terrifying. Uh, as I said, to me, it's an attack against God. It is um, something really, really scary, you know. But that is a place where you find people. That's where you find congregations. And this is why people of faith need to come together and talk to each other and find out what is happening. Uh, you know, I'm... I, I don't have a solution to all the problems because, uh, you know, part of me doesn't understand why people can be cruel or how they can be violent because it's something that I never think about. But obviously there's some virus out there that is, uh, you know, making people target humanity and in places of worship, which is unthinkable. Uh, you know, uh, there's no other word to describe this uh, except evil, malevolent. I mean, it's it's such an evil thing to do. It's the worst, worst form of, of violence. But it happens all the time. You're a very wise person with very wise counsel, and that's why my first phone call went to you, and thank you so much thank for joining you, us today. Thank you, I hope we will continue to talk to you. We will. We will. Thank you. Thank you. Rahil Raza. Professor Mohammed Fadl joins me, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Toronto. He's a Canada Research Chair for the Law and Economics of Islamic Law and his... His expertise, it says in the, uh, in the uh, in information I have, is Islamophobia. Professor Fadl, we had a conversation yesterday, and neither one of us knew how to start. We both knew how we felt, 
but we we didn't know where to begin. At least that was my assessment of the beginning of our conversation. We did, obviously, we had a conversation after that. But where do we begin? How do you assess the horror of New Zealand? Where's the genesis, most likely, for this monstrous act? Well, I think if we're trying, trying to find the genesis of this, we have to look in our reaction collectively to um, 9-11, I would say, um, you know, at that point in time, I think the United States, under the leadership of then-President Bush, um, initiated this kind of black, uh, black versus white, good versus evil war on terrorism. Um, and it came to be a very open-ended war with no clear targets, no clear definition of victory. And as that has continued, um, I think there's been a lot of for lack of a better term, blowback, a lot of frustration, a lot of unpredicted consequences. One of those has been the poisoning of public discourse um, in countries that are involved in this so-called war on terrorism, particularly in the West, particularly in the United States. And um, through the last 20 years, we've seen a gradual escalation in anti-Muslim rhetoric particularly in the United States, and from there it's migrated to other areas of the democratic West. And I think for the most part, although it doesn't represent a huge number of people, at least in the most virulent and violent forms, uh, there are large segments of the political class that are seeking to profit from this anti-Muslim hate, and they've given it legitimacy. Now, that doesn't mean that politicians are out there asking people or encouraging people to go attack Muslims, but the constant reference to Muslims as outsiders, as dangerous, as suspicious, um, as not really being uh, good citizens, etc., encourages the kind of hatred, suspicion, and ultimately the violence that took place in New Zealand yesterday. Um. We see video of extreme violence and hear broadcasts about terrible acts of brutality. Religions are hijacked to fill the justification of the extremist. Has extremism become increasingly mainstream? Well, I think if we're not careful, that's what happens, right? And it's, it's, the, it's the role of responsible politicians to make sure that we deal with politically motivated violence in a responsible way. We have, we, we have our own responsibility levels, though. Pardon? We have our own responsibility levels, too. Are you talking about as citizens, as individuals? As individuals, as human beings. Of course. Of course we do. Of course we do, but we are part of a community, and the reality is that most of us don't have time to understand issues very deeply, and we take cues from leaders. And so a greater responsibility lies on the shoulders of our leaders to exercise responsible rhetoric. Um, and I think that's what's been missing uh, in the last 20 years. Do you think there's been a, do you think there's been a shift in, in politics to, uh, to in fact, is, is there a goal in politics to, to well, it was ever thus, divide and conquer, but I mean in the, in the, in the more specific sense, and, and that is to, to separate based on religion? I think to separate based on religion, to separate based on ethnicity, to separate based on uh, race, um, I think all of that has been on the rise in the last 20 years, and it's been stoked by particular politicians who think that that's the easiest way to get elected. Uh, you're not saying all politicians. You're, what specifically, uh, what concerns you specifically? Well, I'm talking about the kinds of politicians who target Muslims and other racial minorities, identifying them as particular threats to the community, requiring specific monitoring for community communities like that, um, who, who essentially spread fear and hatred um, and essentially terrify other, men other members of the community from these groups. So are there, are, there, are there politicians who actually just point at the Muslim community? Well, I think... For example, uh, President Trump is an ex is an, ex an That's where I thought we were going, yeah. Um, but, you know, BuzzFeed actually published an article two years ago, even before Trump was elected, and it documented in sad, meticulous detail 
uh, the ubiquity of anti-Muslim statements among Republican elected officials in the United States, um, you know, some, some of which are outright genocidal. Um, and these aren't necessarily nationally known Republican officials, but these are rank-and-file grassroots party members. And national members of the Republican Party don't do anything to discipline this. Right, so there's a kind of nod and wink to this kind of thing. Yeah, well, we can we can find you know we in the rank and find file we can always find people who are um, loose cannons and who say things that should actually get them expelled from the political party. But what I'm what I'd like to ask you is this: What is the response within the Muslim community um, in Canada and and beyond to? New Zealand. What's the? F- I mean, I know I, I I understand the heartsick and the and the, and the horror, but just you know where you live. What's the response? Well, you know, I don't know exactly what is going on in mosques here in Canada. I don't regularly go to a particular mosque as such on weekends, for example. But I know in the United States for a long time, mosques have been contracting to provide um, armed security. Um, to prevent things like this, right? So, um, you know, my hometown, I grew up in the United States in Georgia, and so my hometown mosque there, every Friday they have police in, in the parking lot to try to prevent and deter something like this. Yeah. Um, it's a very sad state of it affairs. It is a very sad state of affairs. Um, you know, and I think the people in New Zealand, I think were very, I guess, naive and believing nothing like that could happen. But unfortunately, I think um, there's been a recognition in the United States for a while that something like this could very well happen, and people are beginning to take the threat seriously. Professor Fadl, thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. We'll call you again. Okay, very much. Thank you for your uh, for inviting me. Yes, sir. Professor right. Mohammed Fadl from the University of Toronto. Joining us now from Montreal, is Imam Lukman Ahmed of the Ahmadiyya Jamaat of Canada. Imam, thank you very much for taking the time and uh, deep condolences to you and the Muslim community everywhere. Well, thank you. Thank you for your kind words and thank you for having me on the show. We had an opportunity to speak yesterday, you and I. Um, and I've been thinking about what we, uh, what we talked about. And um, you wrote, if I understand it correctly, and we talked about this a little bit as well, that acts such as the one in New Zealand are because of the misconceptions about Muslims and bigotry directed toward Muslims. Do you want to pick up that line of thought and share that with us, please? Yes. Uh, first of all, I just wanted to say that uh, on behalf of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Jamaat, uh, you know, we're deeply saddened by the horrific attacks uh, that took place on these two mosques. Uh, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Jamaat, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, uh, he has offered his sympathies, his condolences for the victims and families, and you know he has reiterated that it's a massive tragedy when uh, people are killed while they are gathered for worship. You know, as we just heard in the news report, and you know, this teaches us that we we, sh- we must join together. We should all come together. To tackle all forms of, you know, be it racial or ethnic or religious hatred that uh, we might see around us, and as we mentioned, that you know, what I wrote that the there are misconceptions uh, that are there about about Muslims, about the Islamic faith, and I do think that uh, you know these sometimes uh, they lead to these conspiracy theories that you just mentioned. Uh, that were found in in the home of uh, this person who attacked the mosques. And yes, this is a problem that we need to deal with. Uh, One thing that I find uh, very disturbing, Imam, and uh, we spoke about this a little earlier as well, is that houses of worship have become uh, targets for extremists. And the mosques in New Zealand, the mosque in Quebec City, the synagogue in Pittsburgh, uh, churches in various parts of the world. Uh, it, it seems like that houses of worship themselves have become the focus of, of extremists. What's your thinking on that? 
Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, and and you know so, someone who um, I, I'm working as an imam with the Ahmadiyya Muslim Jamaat with a religious organization, and it is especially painful. And you're absolutely right that you know we saw, for example, here in Canada, close to home, in Quebec City, uh, you mentioned that there are some Muslims, for example, Muslim extremists, who sometimes attack and burn churches. And I saw some news uh, over the last week. We saw what happened in Pittsburgh, uh, Pittsburgh uh, with the Jewish synagogue, and uh, you know it's it's especially painful because you know when you're gathered together for worship, uh, you know this is the last thing that's on your mind, and you kind of uh, yesterday I heard someone explaining the the tragedy, and they put it in these words that you know these people they left the world and you know they they go to God in the house of worship and in a sense the world comes back and it and it, it attacked them while they were while they were worshiping while they were praying to god so yeah this is uh, very painful to see and yeah we do see this around the world and you know in as part of <clears throat> it's especially uh painful because within within religious teachings uh, you know be it christianity be it judaism be it islam my faith we see that there is a special status that is given to all places of worship. And for example, when it comes to Muslims, for example, I can speak for my own faith, uh, you know, we are specially taught to never target uh, people of faith, uh, people who teach faith and places of worship. So even even in the times of, uh, you know, conflict, and, you know, of course, this is not a time of conflict, but even at times of conflict, uh, this teaching is there in Islam, but we see that extremists who sometimes they, they they act out in the name of Islam, but we see that their actions are are very much uh, opposing to what they claim to be. Imam, you uh, led Friday prayers yesterday. What did you say? Basically, uh, you know, Friday prayers, of course, this is a painful time for all Muslims throughout the world. And, you know, at such instances, whenever such tragedies happen, the Islamic faith it teaches us to be patient and, you know, to turn to God through prayer. And this is the message that the Ahmadiyya Muslim Jamaat has given to our own members and also to the larger public, to, you know, to stay calm, to stay patient, to work with the authorities, and to stay united in these trying times. You know, we must... Uh, we must all stand united against extremism because if we let hatred, uh, you know, take root within our society, then in a way we are letting the extremists, because that is what their goal is, to divide our society and to, to create these racial or ethnic or religious divides within our society. And, and we have to be careful uh, not to let that happen and we have to work proactively in order to stop that so this is the message that you know we gave uh, i gave in in in, in my friday seminar i know across the country in different muslim mosques this message was given were the uh, people attending prayers afraid is there a, is there a pervading sense of concern anxiety fear um, i think naturally uh, when something like this happens there is fear there is there is concern you know you know yesterday i was seeing on a news report about this ottawa man and you know he had uh, he lives here and he had uh, his daughter uh, you know she did not want him to attend the friday prayers because as part of islamic faith muslims we have our friday prayers every friday it is like it is similar to how christians have their mass on sundays and, you know, she did not want him to go to Friday prayer yesterday uh, because of what she had seen. Uh, but, but, she, but he explained it to her that, you know, this is part of our faith and, and we must not let extremists win in this way. So I think, I think there is naturally some fear, some concern. But as Muslims, we are taught to be resilient. And every time, you know, we have seen with these incidents that uh, whenever something like this happens, uh, you know, we saw it in Quebec City. We saw in many cases yesterday that more people come to the mosque because people, as I mentioned, that people feel that if they sit at home with this fear, uh, 
that has been created by this attack, then in a way they're letting the extremists uh, take the upper hand. Right. So Muslims, they're uh, they're taught in their faith to be very resilient, and 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 it uh, and it's like that throughout uh, different faiths. Imam Mahmoud, thank you very much for the time. Thank Condolences. Uh, Imam Ahmed, Lukman Ahmed from the Ahmadiyya Jamaat of Canada. How are Quebecers seeing things? This is something that we talk about regularly and more, more interestingly uh, over the last few weeks. Now we look at what uh, The Rock, the rest of Canada's thinking and how the votes are, you know, how the, how the polling's sort of shaping up. Now let's have a look at what's happening in Quebec. Christian Bourque is the executive vice president of Leisure Marketing. They did a poll for the Journal de Montréal. Uh, Christian, thank you very much for the time. Hi, Roy. How engaged are Quebecers? Are they increasingly engaged and paying attention to the SNC, Levelin, and then all the rest of the alphabet soup? I, I think it's they're actually sort of growing tired of it uh, by now. It, it, it was kind of a slow start. People here started paying attention to it later uh, than what would have uh, what you would have seen in the rest of Canada, um, and now they're kind of uh, almost past it. But it has hurt the Liberals. So let's talk about what's happened then. As far as when you and I last talked, the Liberals were at thirty nine percent support, and all of this SNC Lavalin stuff hadn't really gone into the blender yet. Uh, but but it's in the blender now, and it's costing the Liberals from that 39% support level. Where are they now? They're at 35. So they've lost four points. Uh, the Conservatives have gained five uh, over the crisis, from 21 to 26. Uh, we have the Bloc Québécois at 17, and surprisingly, the Green Party at 9% in front uh, of the NDP, which is uh, now in fifth place. Uh, and and, and Maxime Bernier's People's Party? Uh, still at 4% through all those, uh, barely any change from 6 to 4, within the margin of error of the survey anyway. So, Christian, when you analyze this, the Liberals going down 4, the Conservatives going uh, uh, up 5, the Bloc, uh, I think, slid, the NDP slid, the Greens are almost double at 9%. How does that all play out? What, what does that say? Well, last time we talked, we were saying how the Liberals were a sort of in seed gain uh, territory based right. on, on 39% would have meant stealing most of the seats away from the NDP, if not all of them, uh, and maybe potentially uh, including a couple of, uh, uh, of block seats. Now at 35, they're still in that uh, area where they should at least retain the seats they have now in the province and potentially still make gains from the NDP. At seven percent, I mean, they they're basically out of the equation almost uh, now in the province. The, the problem with with sort of the disgruntled liberals or, or other voters uh, throughout this whole uh, affair is that they seem to you know sprinkle themselves like powdered sugar over the next the the other political formations. At twenty six percent, the conservatives have been between twenty one and twenty five over the past twelve months. So there's no real significant gain there. And at twenty six, they probably would be where they are now, with a, maybe a dozen, ten to a dozen seats in Quebec, uh, most of them around uh, the Quebec City area, uh, but still very little change. The Bloc Québécois would probably lose a couple of seats, most likely to the Liberals, um, and the NDP could uh, be wiped off the map. I mean, we're we're just eight years after the orange wave, and uh, but it's... Uh, it's kind of disappeared now. So the the status is almost uh, remaining quo, with with you know some some changes accounting for that. But this is not a major loss for Trudeau's Liberals. The thirty nine no. to thirty five and the Conservatives going to twenty six percent doesn't really mean a significant shift in the province. No, and and the major problem uh, that that we see coming into this, as the closer we get to the actual election campaign, the more it'll be about the leaders themselves. And at 16%, well, people uh, in the province who say Andrew Scheer would make the best prime minister, that's still too weak uh, for the Conservatives to hopefully sort of get people on the bandwagon uh, heading into the, uh, to the campaign. He will have to be an exceptional campaigner uh, to, to turn that around. Uh, okay. Still, in our last poll, 39% of Quebecers said they did not know who he was. Okay. Christian, it's always good speaking with you. Thanks so much for making the time. My pleasure. All the best. Christian Bork, the vice president, executive vice president of uh, Leisure Marketing. So there are the Quebec numbers. Not a significant change as far as how the voting intentions turn out. We'll speak with um, 
A member of the Justice Committee for the Conservative Party, Michael Cooper, Edmundetaria MP. Uh, Mr. Cooper, thank you for coming back on the program. And what happened specifically? We, we know we know the, the, how the dominoes dropped, but what happened on Wednesday, and was any of it a surprise? You're being accused, the opposition's being accused of stage managing a call for Justice for uh, for, for Jody Wilson-Raybould to return to the committee. The liberals are saying all you're doing is 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 playing games, political games, when you knew that on the 19th of this month there was going to be an opportunity to do so. But you counter on the 19th is when the budget's being delivered. So was anything a surprise that developed on on Wednesday? Uh, good afternoon, Roy. And uh, yes, I was surprised and disappointed at the actions of my liberal colleagues on the Justice Committee. Uh, this is hardly playing politics. There were a couple of reasons why uh, we felt it was important that Jody Wilson-Raybould be uh, brought back to the committee. First of all, uh, in light of Mr. Wernick and Mr. Butts' testimony, uh, we feel that she's entitled to a rebuttal. And uh, second of all, uh, she has been able to speak part of her version of events, but she hasn't been able to speak about the other half. Why? Because the Prime Minister is silencing her during the period that she was fired as the Attorney General and uh, the time that she served as Minister of Veterans Affairs. Uh, she has said she wants to speak about that period. Uh, Mr. Wernick and Mr. Butts were free to do so. So as a matter of fundamental fairness, uh, we felt it was important that she be able to come back. And she's indicated that she is willing to come back. Uh, as far as uh, what uh, the Liberals are, are saying in terms of this meeting on the 19th, they want to do it, as you pointed it out, on Budget Day when no one is paying attention. And second of all, they want to do it behind closed doors in camera. If they don't want to hear from Jody Wilson-Raybould, if they want to continue to silence her, then as far as I'm concerned, they ought to make those arguments in front of the cameras where there's a transcript and a, a recorded vote. Uh, they want to take this behind closed doors to, con frankly, continue the prime minister's cover-up of this matter. Uh, I agree. <clears throat> excuse me. I agree with you that they're stage managing the 19th as the as the date in order to uh, you know decide whether or not the former attorney general appears before the justice committee, and they're clearly fact factoring in the fact that it's it's budget day. Did 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 how it happened. Surprise you, uh, Mr. Drouin, who is who started this whole process of dismissing the committee, adjourning the committee. Yeah, I, I don't know all the political lingo. Um, and he, he's now saying he's heard enough, and he doesn't think the prime minister stage managing anything. He's not even a permanent member of the liberal committee. So, uh, speak to that, please. Well, uh, I don't know how he can say that he has heard enough when Jody Wilson-Raybould has made it clear that uh, there were communications and things that took place after the time that she was fired as the Attorney General uh, that she wants to speak about but can't speak about. So I, I don't know how he can presume to be satisfied that we've heard everything we need to hear from Jody Wilson-Raybould. And, I mean, as far as uh, Mr. Drouin uh, and the conduct of uh, upper liberal members of the Justice Committee, uh, in my opinion, they acted pretty brazenly. And at the direction of the Prime Minister, they got their marching orders. Uh, they knew what they were doing was wrong. And uh, as proof of that, they walked out the back door afraid to face the cameras. Yeah, that wasn't the best, was it? Um, is there any communication, is there any conversation that takes place between the Liberals and the Conservatives and the NDP um, and Elizabeth May prior to the committee meetings beginning? Is there any negotiation? We'll give you this if you give us that, or is it well beyond any that kind of opportunity? Well, I can say that in the normal course of things, I have a, a good relationship with the chair of the Justice Committee, Anthony Hausfather and uh, Murray Rankin, who is the NDP member, who is the upper uh, vice chair along with myself, have generally worked well together. Obviously, we have uh, policy uh, disagreements, but we've generally worked in a, in a congenial way. Uh, that has not been the case since this snc Lavalin matter has arisen. Uh, essentially, there have been no communications uh, with the Liberals. Uh, they have not provided any indication of, of what they're going to do, and they've uh, not provided any willingness to, to reach out. And, and that's because, really, 
Uh, it's not so much in their control. They're doing the bidding of the prime minister, and they're getting their marching orders from the PMO. Realistically, what is the expectation of moving forward and getting more information out to Canadians? The government ultimately is going to have that five to four vote opportunity. They can control uh, Parliament because of their majority. Uh, are, are you now treading water? And 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 specifically. Uh, is it going to be now up to Jody Wilson-Raybould to either say, hey, I'm just going to do an information dump if I'm not allowed to appear before the committee? And I, I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself, but I thought her letter to her constituents in which she made it very clear that she's going to run, which may not have excited Justin Trudeau too much, but there was her. And she pointed out where she thought there are flaws in the system. And I thought that was in response to the uh, to the liberal position during the Justice Committee. But is it now going to be really up to Jody Wilson-Raybould to make a decision, you know, information dump or some other way, make her information known? Well, it's going to be right in the hands of the prime minister in as much as uh, lifting cabinet confidentiality and solicitor-client privilege uh, during the time that Jody Wilson-Raybould has not been able to speak to, to matters while she was fired and while she was Veterans Affairs Minister. So that's in the hands of the Prime Minister. Uh, Ms. Wilson-Raybould obviously is being, uh, has some very uh, good counsel and former uh, uh, Supreme Court Justice Cromwell, and uh, so she appears to be at field, but she's unable to speak to those matters. So that's in the hands of the Prime Minister. Uh, as far as the committee goes uh, and what happens next, it's in the hands of the liberal majority, and and every indication based upon their past actions is that they're just doing whatever the Prime Minister's office wants them to do, and in that regard, I can't be all that optimistic. They have another issue to deal with, and that's the OECD investigating now uh, Canada's position and the actions taken by the federal government in this particular SNC case, and if the OECD decides that they failed on the uh, on the ethics scale, there that's not a good thing for Canada, and it'll point directly at the PMO. Well, that's right. The OECD has uh, raised concerns and is monitoring whether or not there was political interference in a foreign bribery case. Uh, in this case, and. Uh, Quite, and in, in fact, the government's argument that this is all about jobs, uh, which is nonsense, uh, is a factor that is expressly precluded from being considered in the criminal code under the deferred prosecution uh, agreement uh, legislation. Uh, it's expressly excluded. And yet it appears that that was one of the uh, arguments that they were using to try to pressure Jody Wilson-Raybould, uh, which I would suggest is further indication that the Prime Minister and uh, his officials acted unlawfully, uh, not only in terms of uh, Canada's domestic laws, uh, but also potentially in breach of our international obligations. You want more than just Jody Wilson-Raybould to testify before the committee. You have several other people that you want there. Significantly uh, important to have them appear. Can you remind us of who's on that list and how close are you to getting any of that done? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think uh, it's important that we hear from Jessica Prince. She was the chief of staff to uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould. She was in on a lot of the meetings and phone calls where pressure was exerted on Jody Wilson-Raybould. So she is a key witness. Uh, two other uh, top officials in the prime minister's office, clearly we need to hear from. Uh, Matthew Bouchard, who was, uh, is the prime minister's Quebec advisor, and Elder Marquez, who is a legal advisor to the prime minister. Uh, both of those individuals uh, seem to be the point men, the, the, or at least the individuals who are carrying out the orders of the prime minister on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of moving the file, putting pressure on Jody Wilson-Raybould to uh, interfere. And uh, we also uh, need to hear from the Prime Minister himself, and, and, and of course, Ms. Telford, because, uh, the, who is the Prime Minister's uh, Chief of Staff. Uh, she was in on a meeting with Jessica Prince, Jody Wilson-Raybould's uh, Chief of Staff, where uh, she said, uh, allegedly, that uh, enough, enough of, uh, of any consideration of the legalities, we just need to ramp this through, essentially, it's what she was uh, alleged to have said. Yeah, well, it was an interesting day on Wednesday, though, the, 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 sh the uh, shouts of cover-up and shame, and, and I think the Liberals earned that, and uh, Mr. Drew suggesting he's had enough. Who cares if he's had enough? Uh, we haven't. 
and uh, the suggesting the prime minister isn't pulling the strings. Well, if, 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 if I were to hear that, I'd say who is because I'd want the prime minister to be in charge of something as significantly important as the SNC file, not only to, to Canadians, that's the foremost uh, pri- that's the foremost priority, but uh, y- you want to make sure that uh, the, the, the boss is actually in control of things because if he isn't, uh, which Mr. Drouin seems to suggest, then who is? Yeah, well, I mean, fair enough, and uh, the Liberals are certainly doing everything they can to try to change the channel, but uh, I don't think Canadians are ready to change the channel. I think Canadians deserve answers, and uh, whatever the Liberals decide to do on uh, Tuesday at the direction of the Prime Minister, we're going to uh, use every parliamentary tool and the parliamentary toolbox to get answers and uh, and, and uh, hopefully see uh, that you know, we can get draw some conclusions on exactly what took place. Well, you're doing a good job. Well, thanks, Roy. Thank you, Mr. Cooper. Good talking to you again. I'm sure we'll have another chance to uh, to catch up. Sounds good. All right. Michael Cooper, conservative member of parliament, member of the Justice Committee. He's from the Edmonton area. And, uh, yeah, it's we uh, we can't let this one just sort of be stifled and, and, and you know, put a pillow over it and suffocate it. There's far more information that we need to get, and don't let go sight. Let don't. What's the word I'm looking for? Don't lose sight of the fact that the OECD is now investigating whether there were ethical breaches by the federal government of Canada. So, not a good thing. I received uh, this email uh, a few days ago, and it made me decide to follow up. The email was from Graham. He's 31 years of age. And here's what he, uh, he wrote. I'm 31 and in constant chronic pain from chronic Lyme disease. My doctor is retiring and I've never abused my drugs in my entire life. I know when my doctor has his last day, I will lose my quality of life. And I think I'm going to die. I cry all day, every day, in the fear of what will happen to me when he retires. If I don't have pain relief, I can't stay still for more than five seconds. I look at the sun these days, and I feel like this is my last spring on earth. I feel like I'm the next opioids epidemic victim. I never have abused drugs, ever, because I'm in pain. I've been discriminated against. I don't want to die. This isn't fair. I always prided myself on never doing drugs, but for what? I might add to that that The Lancet, British Medical Review, revealed that more than 25 million people die annually globally in severe pain because they have little or no access to opioid pain medication. I'm joined by Graham, who sent that email. Hello, Graham. Hi, Roy. How are you? I'm okay. How are you right now? Um, uh, wasn't uh, the easiest thing to to listen to that but uh i'm obviously i'm obviously not doing good yeah that struck me so hard when i read your your email i've been thinking about it since and uh, we've on this program been talking about chronic pain patients or as i call them chronic agony patients who are being discriminated against and whose pain medications their opioid pain medications are being denied them increasingly or, or, or their their prescriptions are being being lowered uh, against the patient's wishes and to the patient's detriment, and because of uh, politics and because of well, some medical people who don't seem to care a whole lot. No, the the, the doctors the doctors really only care about themselves, and it's really hard to find a doctor that can really look look past look past all that stuff and you know all of my medical documents over 10 years have said that you know I'm very responsible with my medications I've also been been on a prescription fentanyl for many years and now I'm I'm gone from basically from a, a period where I needed a medication like that to very a low dose of a much weaker painkiller to now looking at I'm not going to have any and these doctors they're looking at all of us like we're criminals and when I see when when my doctor's on vacation and another doctor's filling in and and I say that I'm out of uh, my opioids 
and they look at me like I'm a criminal. They actually, like, they scowl at you, and they all do that. And, you know, they, and all these people in my situation, they're getting, because they're in this situation, the doctors are using a loophole and saying, oh, he's a drug seeker and he's an addict. And then that, and if I, if, if I ever get that label, I'll be, I'll be denied treatment for the rest of my life. What would your life be like without your opioid medications, which you've been taking for years, prescribed and taking responsibly? What happens to you, Graham, if your opioid medications are taken away from you? I, uh, I don't know. Um, I do. I know. I know for a fact that I will be forced to find a way to deal with it, the pain. Because not just not doing anything won't be won't be an issue. I mean, won't be an option. It's, I can't do that. I'll. That will cause me to die for sure. So. How severe is your pain, Graham? Even when you're even when you're taking. Your opioid medication, but from what I gather, it establishes a better quality of life for you. But how severe is your pain on a daily basis? Without opioids, it's well over it. It's well over ten out of ten, and ten out of ten is they consider the most worst pain imaginable. Where, you know, at that point you're screaming and you're calling and you're calling an ambulance or someone's calling calling it for you and and that's that's the pain I'm in without them and when I'm when I have them you know I'm I'm still I'm still in constant pain but uh and I think about it all the time but when when's my next dose or what to do or what I shouldn't be doing because I don't want to get into too much pain you know it's, it's mad with with opiates it's 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 manageable. The pain still always on my mind, but at least I can actually get a break from it with my opiates. And like withdrawal from opiates is 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 very very bad and severe and goes uh, it lasts a long time. But going through that with like ten out of ten pain is not is like a hundred times worse than just normal withdrawal when you don't have severe pain. And your doctor is retiring and your doctor um, is not, is your doctor telling you I can't find somebody who I, I can guarantee is going to continue your prescription? He told me that, he said I might be able to find you a doctor or I can probably find you a doctor. And like he was suggesting that he can get me a doctor at least most likely, but he said the chances of them giving you what I give you are are not good. And I know that because I know people that have been taking opiates for, like myself too, for a long time and have never abused them. In the last year or so or two years, they are now cut off and I don't even, I don't even see one of them anymore. I don't even know if he's alive anymore. And, and you know, let me uh, let me put you on hold, Graham. We're joined. Uh, don't go away, Graham. We're going to come back to you. Kate Nicholson is with us. We've talked to Kate before on this uh, on this program. Twenty years a Justice Department civil rights attorney in the United States. Uh, lived with chronic pain herself. Was on opioids herself, um, and uh, has is is an activist for the chronic pain community. Kate, when you listen to, thank you for joining us, Kate, when you listen to Graham, his story is not unusual. It's it's very sad. It's very unfortunate. It's very unnecessary, but it's not unusual, right? That's right, um, Roy. I mean, it's, it's, it's very compelling to listen to Graham tell his story, and I applaud his courage in doing so. Um, but I hear from hundreds of people um, who have the same story people who have either had their um, 
medications forcibly reduced to fit into certain parameters in, in government guidelines, people who have been abandoned in care uh, because their doctor left the practice, because their doctor was retiring, because their doctor didn't want to treat someone with pain um, or who used opioids. Um, I also hear from people who are very suicidal, and I hear from family members who have lost um, people to suicide or, pe- or people who've been cut off and then have turned to illicit substances. So this is a, a wide-scale problem, um, which is what makes it, I think, a humanitarian and human rights issue. And Human Rights Watch has gotten involved and engaged, and they yeah. issued a report, do they not, where they, where, they, yeah. where they reveal that chronic pain patients are victimized. Yes, they did. Um, Human Rights Watch uh, issued its report in December, um, and they are continuing to do some promotion of the report. They went to a few states in the United States and did some um, comprehensive interviews of doctors and patients, and they found that patients were being um, tapered off of their off of their medication. Um, they were losing the ability to function, um, and but they also talked to doctors who said. Um, hey, I, I, this is against my better medical judgment. I don't want to do this, but I've got, you know, uh, the government forces telling me that this is what I need to do in order to practice responsibly. So, so if I don't um, do if I don't do it, I may get my license uh, revoked. That's correct. That's correct. I mean, um, unfortunately, there's a large uh, sort of almost industry that's been built up, at least in the United States, um, and I know Canada has some similar issues. Uh, the CDC issued guidance in 2016 that had some provisions uh, about dosage and, and that the dosage provisions that they included really applied to starting a new patient on opioids, not to people who have been taking them for 5, 10, 20 years. Um, and uh, also cautioned about um, not, uh, not prescribing for a very long period of time um, when someone has acute pain. Um, and that's because we know that pills were diverted for misuse, that most of the people who misused opioids, prescription opioids, did not receive them directly from a doctor. They got them from someone's medicine, medicine chest, from a friend, or bought them on the street. So those were attempts to sort of uh, prevent that kind of diversion. The problem is that those things, those guidelines that were intended for primary care physicians have in the United States been uh, put into laws and mandates. Most of the states now have laws about how long you can prescribe, and many of the state medical boards say how much you can prescribe. Um, We also have insurance companies and pharmacies that are using data analytics to decide whether they're going to cover a patient's medication at the pharmacy um, or uh, or insurance-wise. Um, and then there's a large law enforcement arm, uh, and almost every U.S. attorney's office in the country is looking into doctor prescribing practices, and they are using those, that dosage guidance as a basis for saying, you know, this doctor is prescribing too much, and they send letters to doctors saying, hey, you're prescribing more than your peers, you better watch out. So um, the threat to doctors is real, too, um, which is why I say this is a humanitarian and a human rights issue um, at this point. Um, I don't think... It is simply one in which doctors don't care about their patients. Are they driving people to suicide? Uh, you know, I mean, we we never know what causes suicide per se. Um, there, uh, but uh, certainly, I there has been an increased report of suicidal ideation um, that's been documented with people who are forcibly tapered. Because people can only live with, people can only live with so much agony in their people lives. People can only live with so much pain, and um, people in pain um, also tend to uh, be at a higher risk of suicide because of that pain to begin with. And there's also the question of taking someone who's been on medication for a long time and destabilizing them. Um, and that, even the the withdrawal that someone can go through and the, the destabilization, even separate and apart from how much pain they're in, uh, can also um, lead to to suicide. So. I'm going to get Graham back into the conversation, Kate, but if you had not been prescribed opioids at the time you were, mm-hmm. uh, what would have happened to your life? How bad were things? Remind us, please, how bad it was for you, and then the difference oh that God. opioids made for you, and you did not want to be on opioids. No, um, I didn't. I mean, I, so I, my situation, I had a surgical injury to my spinal cord, um, and I suddenly couldn't sit, stand, or walk and was in very severe pain. 
And for about three years, I refused to take opioids. I tried 37 different kinds of alternative treatments, and including a repeat surgery and multimodal care and all kinds of things, and, and nothing really worked. And finally, my doctor said, hey, we have a, a duty to do no harm. We're putting you through painful procedure after painful procedure. You really need to try these. And I did. And what happened was that they really allowed me to continue to work and function. Um, I still couldn't walk. I had to argue cases from a reclining folding lawn chair and, and supervise cases from a reclined position using video teleconferencing. But I was able to work and hold down a job. And then later, uh, about 15 years in, uh, surgical there were surgical improvements uh, to, to techniques and some medical devices really changed things for me and I was able to get off of opioids. So they made an incredible difference for me. Um, and that is the reason that when I saw that people were being forcibly tapered in the current environment, I felt like I you know, needed to step in and, and advocate on behalf of Well, you're, you're doing that. You've done it on uh, TED Talks. You, uh, you've, uh, you have an op-ed piece out. Um, mm-hmm. There's one that you co-wrote, 60 Minutes Fails to Represent Pain Patient Perspective. That's the CBS Sunday night program. And then there's the piece you wrote, Clamp Down on Opioids is Hurting Pain Patients. Graham, you've been listening to, to what Kate and I were talking about. What, yeah, what what do you what do you want to say now? What's what needs to be said from your experience and perspective? What do you want people to understand? Uh, I don't know. You know, I, I, there's there's so much. You know, I've always uh, people have always told me that. You know, I'm I'm addicted to opiates and. I'm not, and I think the general public just believes that if if you take opiates, you have to be addicted to them. And I just I just don't agree with that. And uh, and I think one of the worst things that doctors can do is, you know, they know what's going on. They know that you're probably a, a chronic pain patient that uses their meds properly but they look at you and they you find another way to get you out of there and that's by saying oh you don't need them or when they know that you probably do like that that's one of the worst things you can do to a patient is just say say that to them and and try to get them labeled as as an addict and stuff and and you know kate it's also happening to patients in hospitals or recovering from surgery, uh, from what I'm told, they're not getting the opioid pain relief that they they were prescribed previously. That's being uh, reduced or or just refused. And yet, at the same time, as I said, uh, heroin is said to be the answer. Making it legally available for drug addicts seems to be the uh, the argument of choice for for many, including some in the legal profession. It's all backwards. Kate? It, it is. I mean, I, I think there's a concern that, you know, it's driven by this idea, this notion that prescribing is what caused all of the problems to begin with. Um, so the the focus has been to curb prescribing um, and to rethink it uh, entirely, uh, which is having devastating consequences for current patients, as you say, in acute and, and chronic care settings. Um, that said, I, I'm not entirely against appropriately treating people with addiction, um, and you know there are all kinds of uh, choices. I mean, in this country, um, you know, uh, buprenorphine, which is often used for an opioid use disorder, and opioid is uh, getting harder to. There are more barriers uh, for that kind of care, and really, people with addiction are being subjected to medication-based discrimination too, where they're not given. Uh, they're taking it as prescribed, um, no longer addicted, um, and are, are sort of being subjected to some of the same things that chronic pain patients are, who are and neither of whom in that situation um, are in act- addicted. It's really the, the, there's a difference between addiction and dependence. If you take an opioid pain medication um, for any period of time, you're likely to become physically dependent, and that just means that if you abruptly stop that medication, 
um, there will be consequences, including withdrawal symptoms. Uh, right. That can happen with other medications too. Um, so really, you know, in my view, uh, it's really people on both sides of the equation, people with pain and people with addiction who are <laughs> who are not need help. served. And there's a lot of hand-wringing um, and a lot of regulation uh, that, uh, that may be interesting to the politicians and make people look like they're doing something, but really both sides are, the people on the bottom are really the ones being hurt on both sides. Graham, when's your doctor retire? Um, end of April. And I, um, I, I just feel so terribly for you. When I there should there should there should be there should be something for people like myself. There should be. Like if you if you have whether however this opiate crisis, however it started, well, the fact is that it happened. Okay, and whether there's people that are on it because they they took too much, or they're they're on a high dose, or they're an addict, or who cares what it is, the fact is there's a lot of people that are on this and just saying, "Sorry, doctors have to can only prescribe this much." Is you're going to leave so many people in in the dark that the opiate crisis is never going to go away if you don't deal with that group of people that's a small segment of society but it's a significant amount of people and people either are addicted to them or they absolutely need them whichever one it is you can't just sweep all of them under the rug my guess is you're you're you're, you're, somewhere my guess is you're addicted to living without pain yeah my pain runs my life and you know it, it it decides what I do and what I want to do, and and at the same time, one thing I would like to say, you know, and and people talk about fentanyl, how it's so how it's so bad and stuff, and well, one one thing I've told people over the years is fentanyl saved my life. I uh, I was in such severe pain from my Lyme disease that I had for ten years without even knowing I had it, and I found out at at nineteen that I had it. Since I was eight. And Lyme disease itself is is not a whole nother controversy, but the, the, the opiate saved saved my life. If I didn't and that was prescribed. Them, them. That exactly, was, they were prescribed, prescribed by a specialist. Yeah, and they 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 saved my life. I I needed them, and they've I've gone on to coach high school sports, and I won provincial championships coaching uh, lacrosse, and I'm gonna I'm afraid I'm gonna lose all that because the opiates are the only things that really gave me the the chance to do all that stuff. Um, I'm just, I, my fear, I, I don't know what's going to happen. Kate, something has to change now. I mean, this, this has to change now. Human Rights Watch, you, others uh, have to be listened to. This has to change. It does, and, and actually there has been an accumulation of voices recently um, that is is finally pushing back. I mean, Human Rights Watch was an important aspect of that. The American Medical Association recently came out against um, all of these efforts to interfere with people's access to opioid analgesia. Um, there was recently a, a letter signed by international stakeholders people on both sides of the opioid debate, some doctors who really don't believe we should be prescribing them, who still said, hey, cutting people who are currently off of, on opioids off is a humanitarian issue. It is wrong. Um, it was published in, internationally, um, signed by hundreds of stakeholders. Okay. I, have, I have about 20 seconds here. Then let's get okay. at it. Let's make sure that Graham is not uh, led to the life that he's terrified he's being led to. And let's make sure that that people who require opioid medications for their pain, in fact, get what they need. Kate Nicholson, uh, it's uh, Speaking About Pain, ABT, Speaking About Pain, at to Speaking About Pain on Twitter. Graham, thank you very much. I'm going to stay in touch with you. Um, if I hear anything that can, that, that can help you, I'm going to pass it along. Thank you so much. Do you take care. You really take care. Kate, thank you, as always. Thank you, Roy. Thank you, Graham. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.